So I think that there is something um, that I've learned in my recovery that the things that I don't want to face are the very things I have to stand toe to toe with. And that's the path to freedom. Addiction. Addiction is something, guys, that affects me personally, but it affects one in five people around the world. Now, you may be thinking addiction is specific to drugs and alcohol, but you would be wrong. There are over 30 different types of addiction. And so addiction is an affliction on society and modern day society at large. Today, we are joined by Professor Judith Grizel. Her work at Bucknell University is inspired by her own personal experience with addiction, a struggle she chronicled in her book, Never Enough, The Neuroscience and Experience of Addiction. Her work, which has appeared in the New York Times bestsellers list for science books, established Grizel as a leading expert on the science of substance abuse and garnered her an invitation to speak at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland last year. In this episode, guys, Judith and I dive deep into the root causes of addiction. We explore why the disease of addiction is progressive in nature, and we discuss the incredibly huge opioid epidemic in college campuses around the US and how that situation has manifested itself. We talk about the legalization of weed and the role of regulation and control in the systems of drug abuse. We talk about uh, her meeting with the CEO of Anheuser-Busch, one of the world's largest alcohol manufacturers, and what went down there. Pay careful attention to that one. We talk about CBD oils and whether there are, in fact, any benefits to that commercially, as well the opportunities that are emerging today, as well as the latest neuroscience discoveries in this area. But potentially the most impactful part of the show is where we talk about advice for parents, and she shares her two-step process for helping parents manage their children with addiction. Keep in mind now, kids have access to something called a smartphone. So, so much more to get into in this episode of the Matt Brown Show, guys. So please do enjoy the awesome Judith Grizel. Judith Grizel, welcome to the show. Thanks. Good to be here. So we're going to talk about uh, all things addiction today. Um, you, like myself, are very qualified to uh, probably talk about it. you more qualified than me, obviously. <laughs> uh, but uh, we're going to talk about uh, this book here, Never Enough, The Neuroscience and Experience of Addiction, which is uh, something I think in today's world is a conversation with technology and screens. I've got kids and, you know, it's just it's so easy to want to escape reality. And uh, um, yeah, and I think this is a very relevant uh, conversation because I do believe that uh, we all know someone who is afflicted by this um, disease. And we'll talk around if it is or it isn't, but that's largely the, the kind of paradigm at the moment. But um, so lots to get into today, very close conversation to my heart as well. Obviously, everybody knows I'm in recovery as well. So uh, Judith, uh, why don't you kick us off? Uh, give us the elevator pitch for our viewers and, uh, and listeners around the world. You haven't read your book, don't know anything about addiction. Where does this uh, story begin? Take us back. Sure. Uh, it begins, I guess, uh, when I got sober at 23 after 10 years of pretty ferocious using and um, hit bottom early when I heard that I needed to be sober and clean if I wanted to live. I thought there should be a better way than that. <laughs> and so in my insanity, I thought I would solve the problem of addiction and then I would be able to use. And I ended up after a lot of um, time and, you know, pretty insane perseverance, as most of us are like this, um, getting a PhD in neuroscience and trying to understand what was different about my brain from other people's who could use without self-destructing. And I it turned out to be a kind of entertaining and occupying problem that kept me uh, kind of chasing carrots for many years until I was uh, a few decades sober and um, kind of looked up from my desk one day in my lab bench and thought, you know, I'm not getting very far with this solution and uh, in the brain and neither is anyone else. 
And so then I was pretty discouraged, but uh, I thought, well, at least I could explain what we do now. And so the purpose of the book, Never Enough, is to describe what we know is different about brains of people like me and you before we begin using and during certainly the um, development of addiction and even after that. So that's the goal. Just to, I, I figured if I couldn't solve it, maybe by shining a very bright light into the corners of the neurobiology that was clearly written, hopefully, then at least we would understand the problem better. And sometimes I think, uh, you know, at least that's a step in the right direction. Yeah. Um, how big is the problem? Because I think let's, let's maybe go all the way out, zoom all the way out and then get into the neuroscience and how, uh, you know, uh, let's just say um, substances, opioids, alcohol, you know, weed, cocaine, all these other things affect the brain and, uh, and what you've learned in terms of your research. So let's go all the way out. How, how big is this problem that we're talking about? It's funny, you would never know it by the way uh, advertisements and I was saying to a friend the other day, there's barely a social occasion where you're not expected to imbibe, but about uh, over one in five, so about 22% of the population in the world, adults, and that includes people who don't use at all, but about 22% have a substance use disorder. So it is in the U.S. the leading cause of death between people uh, who are 15 to 34. And it's probably much the same throughout the world in places where people use. So this is a huge problem for young people. It takes years of life away. And in the life that we do have, it destroys relationships and work productivity and joy and um, all kinds of health. So it's a tremendous problem. It's, it's uh, you know, the pandemic before the pandemic. I know, right? Can we just have another one? <laughs> Let's double up. <laughs> you know, it's like pandemic on pandemic. I mean, like I, I do, I do kind of um, think about people who are in act. So you get basically people in recovery who still, so everyone's, well, not everyone, but people who have the disease are, are all addicts. And then you get for people who don't understand the terminology. So you get people in recovery who are not in active addiction anymore. They're following some kind of program like Narcotics Anonymous or uh, Alcoholics or AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, and, and then you get people in active addiction. And, and so I'm using that to, to go somewhere. So in when COVID hit, I was like, God, can you imagine what that must be like to be in active addiction during a lockdown, like holy shit, mm -hmm. just so hectic, so so hectic. And then, um, like in South well, Africa, we see the data, Matt, and um, tons of overdoses, much more um, lonely, isolated using, which is always bad news. And so the consequences of that are getting. Uh, revealed now, but you're exactly right. What a what a torturous place to be. Yeah, terrible. I mean, people in abusive relationships, you know, and you know, people going through like dry periods and things like that because they couldn't get or whatever. I mean, in, in here they, uh, in South Africa, they uh, we also had lockdowns and things, and they banned cigarettes and alcohol, which obviously the whole public was like, "What the hell is this? Can't buy alcohol? Why can't we smoke?" I mean, that's not affecting anybody. Um, and one of the key things that came through every single time with uh, the president's speech or his announcements was that um, alcohol basically was a very clear uh, conduit to people doing dumb stuff and uh, domestic abuses going uh, increasing and hospitals, you know, being flooded with people like it's just alcohol is just such a huge contributor to a system like that. Um uh, just so fascinating. I mean, what what do you it feel? It's fascinating yeah. uh, because I just would say around here in the U.S., we made it one of the life-sustaining businesses. So we did the exact opposite thing. Every Lots of stuff was closed, but not the alcohol shops because they knew well that you could die from withdrawal. And of course, that was a justification to save a few lives, but it ended up meaning that people increase their consumption in some cases by up to 40%, you know, in some populations, like old, my women, my age kind of went nuts with the 
wine being delivered and no place to go. So I, I think we have this very dichotomous response and, and both are true, I guess, in some ways, you know, you do do stupid stuff when you're loaded and it uh, is keeping some people alive who are dependent. Yeah, it's uh, it's a sad situation. I mean, uh, for those of us, uh, our listeners listening out there, potentially like, why does this really matter? I mean, I mentioned earlier that we, we all know someone that's like, that guy probably drinks a lot, eh? Um, and, uh, and then users, the worst part is people you know who you don't really know how much they do. And I, and I think many of us are suffering. I mean, it's interesting if you think about you know, Facebook feeds and Instagram feeds, if, if everybody lived that life, we'd all be rock stars, right? And actually, in reality, m- most of our lives are really, really tough, especially now. Um, and so it's quite easy to use and to kind of want to escape that uh, that reality. So what have you learned, Judith? Um, or could you maybe paint a picture around context? How do you know if somebody has a problem? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up, it's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. So good of a question. And I spend a lot of time thinking about this, most of my time, probably. I would say in a nutshell, if the costs outweigh the benefits by any rational measure, then it's, you know, a problem. It's pathological. So we all benefit by using. It's sort of a natural thing to do. I shouldn't say we all do, but humans have use drugs since the beginning of the time. They they use it to connect with things bigger than themselves and with each other in some ways, part of sacred rituals. It's really uh, built into our neurobiology. But um, if you regularly use and high doses and frequent use, then there's um, kind of a, a pendulum swing so that everything good about the drugs uh, turns um, into the exact opposite. So if a drug makes you relaxed and connect with others, you feel uh, anxious and isolated, for instance. So I think it, it's, uh, it takes a, a pretty careful eye to look at the balance sheet and say, is this enriching my life or is it diminishing my life? And one of the problems is that the people who are addicted are known to be full of denial. So they're the kind of last to see it. But I think consequences can, you know, build up over time and eventually it gets obvious or you die. So um, the interesting thing is that that slope from a social user to somebody who's got to, like me, you know, needs to either get clean or, um, not make it is is uh, differentially steep for different people, depending on genetic liability, depending on your age, depending on the type of drug and the frequency of drug and the purity of the drugs you can get. Um, so, you know, that's part of what neuroscience is trying to describe. One of the biggest factors is age. And I don't know when you started using, but I was 13 or almost 13. And um, that is almost a guarantee of developing a problem. They, uh, they say that if you're, if you wait till you're 21, you have about a one in 25 chance of developing a substance use disorder. Mm. But if you start before you're 18, it's a one in four. Whoa. And even higher if you start it 
you know, in your early teens. So while the brain is really malleable, we're very vulnerable. So I guess answering the question of how, how do you know if someone's got a problem, it would involve, uh, you know, the consequences is sort of the barometer. You know, what is it costing you in terms of relationships and dreams or whatever it is you're giving up to use? But, um, but some people, you know, are able to kind of skate along and maybe come out even. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a personal choice, really. Um, I, for me, it's like my life just became unmanageable. So I couldn't handle like the things, all the things I had to do. Um, I didn't hit rock bottom. Thank God. I didn't have like a proper like blowout, but I saw the warning signs and I was just like, hang on a second. There's got to be a better way. And so I had to choose the right, you know, path for myself at that time. And, you know, thank God I did because, uh, one of the things I'm hearing is that, uh, addiction is progressive. So, you know, the younger you are, the more malleable your mind is, as you say. And then obviously, you know, the more you use, the fre- more frequency that you, the more you drink, how, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, then it progressively gets worse. And that, and that's the thing. Cause people, I think you, you, I, I, it's funny now, it's funny now, everything's so clear in hindsight, right? Uh, Judith, like if I go to a social environment and I can see, I just see someone and in an instant split second, I know, that they're using, like not alcohol, but I know that they're using drugs, you know, and I can see it in them in the way that like their face, their eyes, the energy, everything, I can see it. Um, and then of course the behavior, which is, which is the next thing. But I don't think people fully appreciate how progressive it is because suddenly it gets to a point where it's like, Oh shit. Like I did that thing, you mm-hmm. know? And then people are like, cause if I go to a meeting, like an NA meeting and you hear the stories, it's like, Oh my word. Like it's shocking. It's shocking. Um, The reason it's progressive is that the brain aims to adapt and to counteract the effects of the drugs. So the more you use, the better it is at adapting. And the brain, it's interesting because it, it will progress even if we are abstinent for a while because learning goes that way. You know, things kind of sink in over time. We know a lot about the molecular mechanisms of how memories are formed and stored, but the addiction is sort of a memory of the brain that the drug is coming or on board now. And the brain's uh, whole uh, aim is to, is to counteract those effects. And as it does that, you get tolerant because the drug then doesn't work as well because the brain is producing the opposite effect. And you withdraw when you don't have it because now, you know, you're adapted, let's say, to alcohol so that uh, when you're drunk, you don't really stumble so much. You know, you can speak okay. You might be able to go to work. But when you take it away, you're at risk for seizures and you can't sleep and you're anxious and uptight. So anyway, you have all this adaptation, so you have withdrawal, and that leads to craving to keep using. So I think that the brain, there is kind of, uh, the short title of my book could have been There's No Free Lunch, because every time you take a drug to change the way you feel, the brain is going to counteract that. And it's brilliant at doing that. And the more you take it, the more it counteracts, it gets better and better. And I guess there's no way to really outsmart that unless you chop off your head, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a cunning, it's a very cunning uh, disease. Like I've just had one of my, my staff actually. So I, I actually, I don't know whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. You could argue both ways, but I employ people from uh, not like everyone, but a, a few of my staff members have I've recruited from uh, rehab centers and halfway houses and things. So they have some clean time and what have you. And um, I believe in every giving everybody a second chance. Um, and uh, unfortunately, I got burned recently. So one of my um, one of my sales guys um, relapsed, and this was like three months ago. Um, and then I, I, he was, you know, he had like three years of clean time, which is a long time. Most people actually relapse, um, in recovery. So they don't actually just go, Hey, I'm clean. And, you know, whoop-de-doo. It's very rare. One in two, I think, re, uh, relapse. Um, 
anyway, so uh, he relapsed again uh, a, a second time now recently, and that that really hurt, you know, because it's like I think people don't fully appreciate the consequences of an of what an addict. Uh, does or in terms of their behavior and the, and the negative impact it has on families and support systems and you name it, just so many different things. Um, and I think it's important for us to maybe talk about Judith about, uh, well, this massive airplanes flying overhead, <laughs> but, um, what are the root causes? So obviously you're a behavioral neuroscientist, you, you know, research pharmacology and genetics and all these kind of things. Have you found a root cause for, uh, addiction? Well, this is, a. Uh question that I roll around all the time. And I thought that it was going to be simple. I I thought it was going to be found clearly in the brain because my brain was different from other people's. I, I would get a little bit of a drug and I was completely out of control. And it didn't matter what drug in a way, I just, um, there was kind of no breaks. And I think Partly it was the get the party on desire, but it was also something you alluded to earlier that I, I, I think I've spent most of my life trying either to escape or manipulate reality. And so when I found drugs, it was like the perfect tools, you know, you could make reality a little more this way or that way, or it, it was never boring. It was not that painful. It was not that, you know, tiresome. Anyway, so I could... I could use that way, and I thought it was going to be in my brain. I then realized, well, the brain is very complicated, and we know that half of the risk is inherited. So if you have an alcoholic or another drug addict or even someone who's depressed or anxious in your family, you're at an increased risk. And I was studying that right around the time we finished the Human Genome Project, and so I was very, uh, I thought, well-poised to pick up the genes that were related to my risk. And that, again, turned out to be much more complicated than I realized. I now think that the the brain is um, not the cause. I think the cause is related to the brain and it comes through the brain. But I think it is much bigger than that, including... uh, exposure during development, including culture, and this tendency that really um, modern society, I think, embraces that if you are uncomfortable, you should fix it. (laughs) And you should fix it quick. It's just considered pathological, I think, to be discontent. And I think that's out of line with reality in a way. And um, that helps drive addiction. So I think there are many, many causes. But in the broadest strokes, I might say that children being in pain or bored in a context where high-potency pharmacological substances are widely available uh, and they use naturally because they're going to experiment And some of them, those who are especially in pain or bored or both, uh, find it very reinforcing and it sets up a pattern in the brain and in the behavior that lasts a lifetime. Is it a disease? (laughs) You know, what's a word? I I just, I don't get so stuck on the words because, I mean, what is, what is a, I don't know, um, biodegradable mean, what is, uh, I don't know. I, I think what does any word mean? I, I like to think of it as a dis-ease. Um, I think it is a disease in the traditional sense in that it's progressive, in that it's definitely costly and lethal. Um, but unlike diseases like diabetes or cancer, we can't point to, we can't, you know, give you a test and say, yes, you have it. No, you don't. And this is a a big problem because, um, you know, if you're, if you're trying to figure out which side of the line are you on and the line itself is a moving target, then, um, 
then we're a little bit lost. So I don't know. I'm a little loose with that word. I think it is to, to uh, have this huge risk of death and also of, of lesser things, but equally uh, not great. So uh, increased depression, increased anxiety, cognitive impairments, um, social impairments, relationship impairments, and continue using, that doesn't look so, uh, you know, it's irrational. So yes, I do think this morning that, or this afternoon, it's a disease. <laughs> Great answer. <laughs> So uh, one of the I watched a documentary series on Netflix about the uh, the uh, opioid or benzodiazepine abuse on, on college campuses, and I thought it was frightening because I got two young kids uh, moving to the states, um, and uh, it was interesting for me the social pressures that have or systems that have been created that actually that not force but certainly allow uh you know certain uh, types of drug abuse to be okay and in one of those environments is the college environment so what's happening is kids are uh you know under pressure to study and so they take these drugs to essentially you know stay awake to stay alert to study harder to, to blah 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 among many other reasons but there's a lot of social pressure there that's creating this it's okay and people are just borrowing it like it's just free for all you know at least this is what uh, the documentary was revealing so i wanted to ask you uh, professor um is there a way to combat the systemic environments like that uh, that mm. lead to you know, not even procreative drug usage, but actually abuse. Well, you're right. It's a huge problem in in the in the world, but especially in Western cultures and in the U.S. and on my campus. This is um, not benzos or opioids per se, but um, cognitive enhancers like Adderall mm. and Ritalin, which are really widespread. So it's this is a, an, a good question too, because ADHD is the disorder or the disease for which those drugs are prescribed. And again, like addiction and not like cancer, it's hard to say whether someone has an attention deficit disorder or if they're just tired and not focusing, you know, but the drugs make everyone more productive. They speed up cognition and they, and they help you focus. So just like alcohol will relax anybody. Um, whereas a chemotherapeutic agent isn't going to do anything if you don't have cancer. So this is a, a, a good um, segue, I guess, from the question about behavioral disorders, what is a behavioral disease? But at any rate, um, in the U.S., we have about 10 or 11 percent of kids diagnosed with ADHD. And this is fascinating because um, across the world, the rates are very different. It's about one uh, fifth of that in France. And I think le much less than that in uh, Scandinavian countries. So either it's something in the water over here that you should watch out for for your kids or um, there's something we're doing to either facilitate the incidence or facilitate the diagnosis. But your question was really more to what about people who aren't diagnosed and just want to use these drugs? I, I should say that there are some people who think that we need cognitive enhancers. All of us look around, you know, the world's falling apart. We can't make good choices at all. If we should put this stuff in the water so that people will be able to keep their eye on the ball a little bit and, um, improve. Interestingly, they, uh, they're not that effective. And um, so they're kind of overrated when we do controlled studies and look at how much do they really benefit you. They do help you focus, but they also, um, you get tolerant and you get dependent. And what that means is if you take those drugs on a regular basis, you won't be able to focus without them. The other thing that's interesting, I think, uh, and we could talk about this all day, but 
focusing is good for writing a paper at the last minute, but it's not great for relationships, for instance, hyper-focusing. And there's a cost. There's a cost in our, in our relationships and in our, um, you know, it's, it's good to be a little absent-minded, I think, if you're married, for instance, <laughs> if you're just like, you know, drilling down constantly on the, you know, pimple, I think that that isn't great. So I, again, there's no free lunch. Um, it, my students think that they're getting away with something and, you know, their papers aren't that good. So do you know of your students who are using Adderall actively? Yes. Mm-hmm. And is it openly discussed? Or, or would you would you characterize your students? Um, obviously, we're generalizing. It's not all students in America, but certainly you have a direct relationship with many of them. Um, is it openly discussed in terms of you know the consequences of misuse and so, things like that? You know, it's really interesting because the people who are diagnosed. Yes, we do talk about it, and I teach a neuroethics class. And this comes up a lot. And I also bring it up in Introduction to Neuroscience or General Psychology because it's something relevant for them. It helps me explain how the brain works. But the people who have a diagnosis don't like other people using. Because, again, this is a drug that's supposed to medicate a deficiency, not enhance already decent functioning. And so they feel like the drug is benefiting them who may actually, you know, ha- have, they probably do have a deficit and uh, that leveling out the pay- playing field goes away when everybody's taking it. Um, we, I do also hear from students who started just using it in college because it was available. People would sell their pills. And then by the time they're seniors, they're kind of falling apart. So they realize they can't do anything without it. You know, they can't get anything done if they don't have it. And they've been taking it not as prescribed. Another thing I talk about in the book is that this class of drugs, which is amphetamines and methamphetamines are neurotoxic. So if you take it as prescribed, we don't think it really damages the brain. Although again, you do have tolerance and dependence, but if you don't take it as prescribed, you do have a risk of, uh, kind of long-lasting brain damage. And, you know, people could argue that also happens with chronic binge drinking and lots of people do that. So, you know, I don't want to be too much of a fuddy-duddy, but I do think we should be kinder to our brains. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting because it's interesting to talk about the systems, right, and what becomes socially acceptable because I think, uh, you know, even five years ago, just five years ago, which isn't a long time, uh, not today, uh, but you know, five years ago, non-alcoholic beer wasn't a thing. Like you could, you battled to find it, um, and um, and now you've got it's trendy. So you've got big traditional breweries like South African breweries, uh, one of the biggest brewers in the world, introducing Castle Free, Heineken Zero, um, and there's a there's a social, um, let's just say. Uh, trained where driving drunk is an uncool thing. So when my dad was, you know, 26, 30, 40, whatever, it was fine. You know, you could just drive drunk and that was a thing. And now if you like drunk driving is really bad and that's socially unacceptable. Um, And so now there's, and it's like, but now if you want, if you want to be socially acceptable, well, what is the role of brands in that space who traditionally have been facilitating this uh, you know, consequence from uh, drink, drunk driving as an example. And here, drunk driving kills loads of people, loads. It's, way, it's worse here than in many, many other countries around the world. Um, so where I'm going with this is it's this idea that societal standards start to affect the environment and the systems within it, and that ultimately affects the size of the pandemic. I mean, even with the Adderall story, uh, you know, you got these farm pharmaceutical companies producing the stuff, knowing that it's an epidemic and nothing is happening about it. Uh, it's not like the, no one's, well, uh, there is some stuff happening about it, but it's still socially acceptable for students to take Adderall, even though they're not suffering from ADHD to your point. Um, so what can we do about this? 
Uh, I know it's a big question, Judith, uh, but I know you're in the space and I know you do a lot of research. Are there, are there studies being done currently around this particular context of addiction? Yes, there are studies. I, I just want to add to the conversation to uh, of alcohol and stimulants, that of um, marijuana and THC, because we saw an 180 degree turnaround practically overnight. You know, one minute it was really frowned on and people who were found with an ounce, you know, were put away in jail. And the next minute, lots of um, new businesses making tons of money, growing a weed, you know, that could grow itself. Um, and now it's, you know, medicine. So I, I do agree. And the literature certainly recognizes this pressure to use, to take something, to change something, to mitigate something, to alter something. Um, and we, we just... You know, I was, it's funny, I was talking, I, I remember hearing, I must have been really newly sober, and I heard this guy who had been a mountain climber, he climbed all over the world, and he was living like in San Francisco, and I don't even know why I was listening, it was probably the precursor to a podcast, you know, 30 years ago. And he said, you know, I've climbed all these mountains, and you know what I finally realized? The biggest mountains are inside me. And I thought at the time, that's nuts, you know, like, I don't want to go anywhere near inside me. You know, I'll, I'll, I need to climb some mountains first. I, I first, I did the drugs. Now I'm sober. I'm not going to do that, but I'm going to do other things. And now I realize he's absolutely right that showing up for the day, just as it is with what's ever around us is plenty engaging, is plenty challenging, is plenty uh, rich that, Especially since by enhancing it, we we um, compromise it. However, we got marketing like no tomorrow, you know, and mm -hmm. if there's money to be made, it's going to take a sort of revolution. Now, maybe kids these days, I think there is a, a change in recognizing that we're kind of being duped. You know, it's, it's really... Uh, the, the beer thing is hilarious because I had a conversation about three or four years ago with the head of Anheuser-Busch. And I said, you know, how can you sleep at night? Alcohol is killing. It's the sixth leading cause of death around the world, you know, in some places much higher, in men your age, much higher. And um, he said, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I said, and there's nothing to drink. If you're sober, there's really, you know, what do you have? Crappy water, you know, or soda? And uh, he said to me, well, you know, it's more expensive to make non-alcoholic beer. And I said, well, tough shit, you know, I mean, make it and charge us then. So I'm kind of happy that that's there, but I do think we're not going to legislate our way out of this. We're not going to moralize our way out of it. Maybe we'll just transcend it as people get sick and tired of being jerked around, you know, mm. by either the drugs themselves or the advertisements it's uh, a funny thing you mean i was going to ask you about the um the legalization of weed in um or should i say the relaxation of laws federal laws around uh you know distribution and consumption of marijuana um, i lived in uh, amsterdam for three years and i was 26 and so there it's very socially acceptable and there was a lot of drug tourism and even now um, you know, drug tourism is a very, 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 very real thing. Um, and you know, if you go to, so I, there was this thing uh, was saying that I love is like, if you go to Amsterdam ever, you don't, uh, you don't do Amsterdam, Amsterdam does you. Um, and, uh, drug tourism is, is a negative thing there that the Dutch locally in, in Holland, they hate it. They hate it because it's rowdy. The, the, the tourists, the drug tourists are, you know, abusive to the, um, to the sex workers and all this kind of stuff. Um, and it's just, it's, un, it's unpopular. Uh, but now what we see and that, and it was like, Amsterdam was like, it was like 
it was like that outlier thing. Like it was the only place in the world that you could go where it was it was accepted to walk around, smoke weed, and do drugs openly and what have you. And then and now we're seeing it's almost like there's catch up happening, you know, in certain parts of the world, uh, like America, where federal laws are being relaxed. And I would love to get your view on this. I mean, what do you think the the kind of social impacts are going to be uh, around these kinds of trends? We know that the social impacts are going to be not good. Um, That doesn't mean there's a better alternative, but there's a lot of bad news coming down the pike, I think. Uh, There was a a study showing that about 40% of the new cases of psychosis, and psychosis is the main um, symptom of schizophrenia. So new cases of schizophrenia are attributable to smoking high potency weed. And this is a hugely debilitating disorder, probably in my mind, one of the absolute worst. I think I'd rather have pancreatic cancer than schizophrenia because at least it's only affecting my body. Um, So there's that, uh, there's uh, cognitive impairment there is reorganizing the cortex if you're using as an adolescent. So, you know, we talked about this before, but using earlier, you change the structure of your brain for a lifetime. Um, there's, it, it's, it's absolutely, I mean, it would be hilarious if it wasn't true, but not only did it go from being sort of this evil weed to medicine, but we skipped all the data in between and it's really neither, but it's, it's not free and it's not medicine. There's uh, nothing that THC has been shown in a uh, good scientific study to benefit. Cannabidiol benefits a few things, which is something in the marijuana plant, but THC, no. So what is it benefiting? People are making a ton of money, but going back kind of like the alcohol thing, there's a maximum amount that people can drink, you know, and the companies like, uh, what is the one call? Anyway, I I used to know this on the top of my head, but the companies that sell alcoholic beverages can only sell so much because people, you know, eventually pass out, you know, they can't just drink 24 hours and it's going to be the same with the weed, you know? So um, in the meantime, though, I think that, it's going to affect a lot of this generation. I have a daughter who's 18 and I have a couple of sons who are in their twenties. And um, I think it's a hard time. It's hard. And I don't think it's going to be great. So uh, I don't know what to say about it. I, I, I certainly agree that alcohol and nicotine have done tons of damage and they've both been legal. So I, I don't think it makes any sense to try to stop it by legislating it away, but I'm for educating instead. And I guess that's partly why I wrote the book because I, I would like people to realize that, you know, it's not medicine and um, there's a cost. Yeah. I had um, uh, Julian Stobbs and Myrtle Clark on the show. You won't know them, but they're pretty famous in the weed circles here in uh, South Africa specifically. I had them on uh, the show in, on episode 137. And uh, they're, they're called AKA the Dacha couple. And Dacha is a local word for weed, marijuana. Um, and also on the show, I had their lawyer, which was Paul Michael um, Kachal from Schindler's Attorneys. And it was a fascinating conversation, w- which is kind of what we're talking about, right? Which is the, what's actually going on here. And it was all around, um, you know, mar- marijuana economics and the um, the relaxation of laws. And they actually went all the way up to the constitutional court of South Africa. And they made their case with the law firm on a pro bono basis, which I thought was fascinating. Is why is a massive law firm taking this case on at cost with knowing that they're not going to get paid out for this thing, what, what's really going on here? And uh, and and what was what transpired was they basically made the the case to the constitutional court that it was their constitutional right to use weed, um, and it should and the laws were dated and blah 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 blah, and they won that, so it was a landmark um, you know win for for um, for them. 
but what the consequence was, it started to uh, explode this this marijuana ec- economy, uh, CBD oils, you know, f- f- uh, Dachau farms or weed farms and stuff. And um, it's big business. It's big business now. And the law firms, or well, at least the theory goes, the, the, the kind of, if you connect the dots, so one of the schools of thought is that the law firms are positioning themselves to win uh, on this kind of growth path, you know, of this new economy that's opening up because it is so huge. Um, and where, where anything that, um, has, you know, uh, where it's driving change quickly and usually it's through regulation, even blockchain and cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin, the same thing, you know, uh, people start to take advantage of, of the situation, um, but it has led to the proliferation of of products, and these products are readily available. If I go to the local like shop here, like the CBD oils at the um, counter for at the chemist. <laughs> so, I wanted to ask you a question to maybe double down on your research. Uh, are you, what has your research really shown around the benefits of things like CBD oil for treating basic diseases, or, you know, or conditions that we have? So. Wow, so much in there. Um, CBD is absolutely beneficial for two or maybe now three types of early onset epilepsy. So in young children that have been completely impervious to traditional medicine. So if you're a child with epilepsy and it's bad, you you your life is kind of ruined because the more seizures you have, the more brain damage you get. And some people, about a third, are insensitive to these heavy-duty drugs. These are like pentobarbital and stuff. So big downers, and they don't respond to that. So they're doped up, and they're still having seizures. The only thing up until recently that we could really do for those was take out chunks of their brain. So remove big portions of their brain and hope that it happened young enough that they could leave a, lead a semi-normal life. And CBD is um, clearly shown to benefit some of those kids. Interestingly, though, uh, so that's the only thing. Um, Other things we're trying, you know, and there's some research that shows slight benefit to um, anxiety, but it's not been really well vetted and the data is not clear. So they, you know, there's a few big um, meta-analyses of all of this, and they conclude nothing yet, nothing yet, nothing yet. So it could happen. One point about CBD is that it's actually an antidote to THC. So it does the exact opposite thing as THC does. So I'm fine. Put CBD, you know, for sale at the gas stations. But uh, THC is very different from that. And I've heard this argument about cognitive liberty. You know, I should be able to mess with my own mind in my own house, in my own way, um, because it's not hurting anyone else. And I think that's really naive and selfish. Um, You know, this is sort of how Americans have been about using fossil fuels. You know, we can, so we should be able to have a, a, you know, a big boat and six cars and whatever else we want to burn up because, you know, it's our, we, we can get it, I guess. And I think that we didn't realize that we were affecting the rest of the planet. And I feel maybe we didn't realize. And I think it's the same with this because um, we are clear that using THC during adolescence, which is when most of it begins, is damaging. It impairs cognition. That means it makes you stupider. And it uh, increases your chance of depression and anxiety and other psychopathologies, and including psychosis. So, you know, I think it's in, unbelievably selfish for 40-year-olds to say, hey, you know, I get to, I don't know how old these guys and their lawyer were, but, you know, I get to do whatever I want because kids learn from adults and, you know, I think we both know that adults wagging their fingers and saying, now this is not for you. It's for me, but not for you. You know, that's doesn't work. And especially also on this last thing I'll say, but it, it probably is incumbent upon the adults to model 
how to get through living without being wasted. And I think it's less and less likely that kids can find those models. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting one because I watched your TED talk and um, and then in there you shared that stat around you know if you if you get drunk we, the earlier you use the more likely you are to develop a to develop a, an you know an addictive personality if you like um, and the uh, one of the other things also I've seen in my family is that it's it's past uh, it's it is there is a role that genetics plays in this and one of the things that I'm I fear, like my wife the other day, she had my baby girl there. She's like three and she had like some champagne and she was like, what's this? And she was like, no, no, that's mommy's juice. And then she's like, can try, try. And then she like gave her like the tiniest of sips. And I was like, "Uh uh-uh, like no, like fucking hard fucking no on that one. Uh, because of the thing that you shared, and and it was something that I remember, because I remember the first time I got drunk, and I'm sure like any everybody listening to us will remember around about the first time they got drunk, you know who they were with. I was it was a Sunday for me, I was probably like ten or nine, and my dad gave me a glass of champagne. That was the first time I got drunk. So so something so random like that, um, and then you know you cast your mind back, and you're like, damn, like what what. What could my parents have done? Like, how different would my life have been? I know it's not a, it's it's an it's an intellectually stressful thing to uh, jump on, right? In terms of a of a school of thought, but like, what would my life have been like if I'd made just a slightly not okay? Drink some drink, fine, but just be a little bit different. Like, maybe just a little bit more control, a little bit more like respect associated with it. Like Conor McGregor said, you must always respect the whiskey, you know, even though he has his own brand. Um, and I, and I think about that and I think about that as a parent now and I'm like, geez, like, by the way, addictions, we're talking only about substance, but addiction is like, there's 20 different types plus, you know, 30 different types of addiction, sex, foot fetishes, you know, you name it. It's like, it's all sorts of food is a big one as well. Bulimia. It's like, it's all this thing. It's all wrapped up in the same subject. Yeah. Phones is another one. So I'm, I'd love to ask you, um, professor, what is your advice to parents? Because, for me, it's just like we, we don't have – there's no rule book that says how do you manage this. Uh, what, as a parent, is your, is your advice? I mean, you've got older, older kids than, than mine, but what are your words of wisdom there? So I, I'm struggling with this, you know, as we speak, watching or, you know, holding my kids as close as I can and, you know, hoping – um, I, I guess my, my two suggestions are these, uh, model how to cope with suffering. And, uh, you know, that doesn't mean turning on the TV and it doesn't mean, you know, eating a bag of potato chips or taking yourself to bed. I, I, I don't think there are many models for that. Suffering is inevitable. You said it. We all know it, and yet it's invisible because we we suppress it and evade it and deny it and ignore it. And I think that is uh, a, a gas for children. I think it, it doesn't make sense to kids to see that and to not understand what's going on. So when their mommy or daddy goes away, when things get tough in any way, I think um, that's a message that's dangerous. And I, I fully uh, appreciate how hard it is. So that's one. The other thing is kind of um, maybe on the other extreme, and that is that it is completely natural and healthy for young people right around the time of puberty to take risks challenge things, be a little bit stupid, uh, try new stuff, you know, jump off the barn roof or whatever it is that, and, and we should find ways for them to embrace those tendencies, which are baked into their brains and their genes to embrace those tendencies without using high potency substances. The problem right now is there's very few ways to step out of the lines until you come across, you know, a bong or a bottle of 
whiskey or something. And I, I think if that's our only option, it was for me, then, you know, it was like a no brainer. Of course, this is how I can express myself, but you know, there are other ways. And I think as a society, as a, as a world of um, sentient adult, hopefully we should, we should recognize that this is who they are. And they're this way, by the way, for really good reason, because it's almost like evolution picked old people who were tend to be conservative. And there's a biology for this too. tend to be risk averse, tend to go slowly, tend to be like, now, wait a minute, you know, it worked yesterday. Let's leave it. Let's not. And then a bunch of other people who happen to be younger, who are ready to turn over the table and start over. And we need ways for them to do that. You know, rock climbing or, um, poetry or music or, you know, without getting, without checking out. So those, that was probably too long, but those were the two things I would say we need. But I love, especially resonate with the first one uh, around uh, coping mechanisms for suffering, because that's not taught. (laughs) Like it's just not taught. Uh, Or at least it wasn't in my, in my age. Like it was like, well, you know, children should be seen and not heard and, you know, men shouldn't cry and you must be, you know, like the old patriarchal bullshit, you know, that, uh, that you just, Hey, you know, just you, it's part of that time. Uh, and yet you carry that with you for so long. And, and I think I, I'm very aware of the idea of suffering. Cause when you wake up in the morning, life's standing outside the door waiting to kick you in the fucking face. Uh, and if you don't have coping mechanisms to deal with that, I mean, bullying at school, peer pressure, uh, and that's where it starts, right? And um, and then you're open to, as you say, exposure to, to you know, class A cocaine when you're like in your teens. <laughs> it's way more available now than it ever was. And then you've got screens, PlayStation. Geez, we had to take my uh, PlayStation away from my son because he was acting like an addict and he was six. And I see it because I know what that looks like because I am that guy. He is me. My wife keeps telling me, he's you. I mean, it mustn't be so hard on him. Uh, but um, but it's, it's, it's so, so present um, that, you know, as parents, you, you, you have to have an idea around how you're going to uh, provide those coping skills to your kids. Um, because especially now, uh, because it's, it's, as you say, society is changing quickly. And uh, for, for us as parents, as leaders, even in our people, it's the same thing. I mean, one of the things I see in, in my business, uh, you know, we've got 40, 50 staff, uh, is that it's it's so personal. Like people break down all the time. There's so much personal drama that's happening and you just don't know. You know, people are self-isolating. It's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very difficult time and it's never, it's not going to change, right? So it all comes down to how you adapt and how you interpret things and how you're going to cope. Uh, but I want to double down on that just very quickly with you, Professor. How do you, what are, what are some examples of coping mechanisms that you can install in kids? Is it something simple like meditation? Is it something like speaking, communicating about your problems and how you're feeling? Like what are the kind of practical things there? I think both of those are practical meditations, uh, hard to teach a kid in a way and also easy, but it's, I guess it's hard to teach the adults. So maybe the kids would come naturally to it if we did. I think, um, being outside, I think talking about the feelings and the disappointments and the sadness and the anxiety. I had a student in my office yesterday and I, I, hardly got to know her all semester teaching, uh, you know, in an intro class. And she talked about her anxiety. And I said kind of off the cuff, you know, you'd have to be crazy not to be anxious these days. And she, you know, really appreciated that because I think she feels uh, lonely about it. And so um, I think, first of all, we have to look at ourselves and see how do we cope with our suffering? Because what I guess I'm arguing is that the way we're coping with our suffering right now is causing more suffering. And so uh, by trying to avoid it, go over it, under it, around it, deny it, it just gets bigger. So I think that 
there is something um, that I've learned in my recovery that the things that I don't want to face are the very things I have to stand toe to toe with. And that's the path to freedom. So I guess, first of all, um, looking at how we cope. And one thing that is clear from the neurobiology also is that we are social. And one of the most effective ways is to talk to another human being, not to isolate, but to say, it's interesting that you know about your employees because having that knowledge means that you have an opportunity. And so we, we have to do things that don't enhance the suffering. And that means going through it one way or another for me, walking in the woods, um, writing or reading poetry, talking with another human being is probably the most efficient way to get through stuff, telling the truth about myself to someone else. Um, And I think kids probably get this more naturally, have this knowledge, but I, I think we'd be doing them. And also, really, there's so many people who've written about suffering. You know, there's beautiful stories of people who have suffered you know, in concentration camps or as refugees or just as a result of their own individual struggles. And they have a, a, a light to shine on a path that we probably all could benefit from knowing. So I guess it, it's just to recognize that there's no easy way through it, I think, and to help our kids you know, and I, I'm a, so as a parent, you never want your kid to suffer. You know, that's like the one thing you want to protect them from. And I think in a way, being a parent is like one dispossession after another of, you know, old ideas and desires and, you know, all of that. So um, I don't know what works for you, but it shouldn't be compulsive. It shouldn't be destructive. Uh, it should be connecting and true. Yeah, one great book I highly recommend everybody should read about suffering is uh, A Man's Search for Meaning, I think, by Viktor Frankl. And it's a, literally a story about the concentration camps. And he was a psychologist and it was just like you read that and it's like, damn, this is so true. I got a lot of power from that book um, because it gives you perspective uh, when you are suffering um, and, um, and I think, yeah, you have to wrestle with that, uh, you know, the idea of suffering and even as a parent, allowing your children to suffer, because I think you get helicopter moms or helicopter dads and you're trying to protect the kid from like falling over and cutting its knee open or whatever, you know, and you cannot control everything. You can only manage it. So, uh, professor, uh, let's wrap this up. Why do you do all of this work? Like, why do you do what you do? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Well, honestly, I do it because it's wildly interesting. Uh, I'm not bored. I have a really low tolerance for boredom. And uh, working on a difficult problem like this is um, something that challenges me all the time. And so I appreciate that, uh, that. And I also realize that for me, um, meaning is not only in being you know, endlessly entertained, but it is in uh, having a positive impact. So where I used to care only about myself, I would like to leave the world um, somewhat better for having been here. And so that's a hope I have. I think it's, you know, sometimes it's, um, you know, we don't know, but uh, that's, uh, that's a goal. So, yeah, I, I'm hoping that we're making progress as uh, by getting more and more knowledge. I can see we're going long. I was looking for this quote by uh, Viktor Frankl that I've used before, and it's funny, just at this particular moment, I can't find it. But he, he does say something that's really apropos to, in that book, it, apropos to our conversation. And geez, if I could not. Well, there's a paradox. Just, I did a quick Google. Uh-huh. Uh, let me bring it up here. Um, so he says here, in, in Man's Search for Meaning, Frankel says that happiness cannot be pursued, it must ensue. And that happiness is a byproduct of doing something meaningful, but meaning is often directly correlated to sufferings. In other words, you have to suffer in order to get 
happiness. It's like a, it's funny. It's like, I don't know if that was one of them, but certainly there's, there's just so many things that make you go like, what? <laughs> you know. Well, this is what he said that is uh, that I was thinking of that is a better answer to your great question than the one I just gave. He said, in Man's Search for Meaning, the prisoner who lost faith in the future, his future was doomed. With his loss of belief in the future, he also lost his spiritual hold. He let himself decline and become subject to mental and physical decay. So we have to have hope for um, something. I, I need to have hope that the understanding we're gaining in research labs, the um, process of connecting across the Atlantic Ocean like we're doing, those sorts of things uh, evolve our capacity to live fully. And... Um, and that's what I have hope in. So that's what gets me out of bed. Amazing. Great answer. <laughs> Great it took answer. me a while. Yeah, you did it. You're well done. But uh, Judith, uh, Professor, thank you so much for your time. It's been, uh, you know, kindred spirits, I suppose, you know, walking a similar journey, obviously, but uh, not the same, of course. But yeah, what a, what, a, what a privilege having you on the show. And uh, yeah, guys, please go out there and get... Um, do this book uh it is called never enough the neuroscience and experience of addiction i think something all of us should read as parents as leaders as business owners and just as ordinary people trying to live a, a fulfilled life so thank you all for tuning in uh and thank you for all your emails that i get thanks so much guys and uh, judith we'll see you again soon thank you bye bye thank you Thanks for listening to the Matt Brown Show, guys. Don't forget, you can catch me on all social media platforms for the latest updates, news, and a show history. So if you've been catching this on the podcast, please head on over to our YouTube channel and pound that subscribe button. It would be great to catch the video version there. And if you want a free copy of my number one Amazon best-selling book, your inner game for free right now today. You can grab that on mattbrownshow.com forward slash ebook. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients Haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an X.com.